tell me one thing, Burke? You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back, but to wipe them out. It's just one of those things managed to wipe out my entire crew in less than 24 hours. And if the colonists have found that ship, then there's no telling how many of them have been exposed. Do you understand? I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. This is episode 66. This is episode 2 in our Alien 3 series. I am joined by my co-host... Patrick Green, calling all the way from jolly old England. So if you guys hear a little bit of an issue with the, a little static or whatever with some audio, it's just because we're, I'm in California, he's in London. That's really what it is. This is a, a small discussion episode that's going to be a, a jumping off point for three segments that we're going to be releasing, which are going to be, or will be mini episodes, or mini-sodes, I should say. And uh, and in each of these mini episodes, we're going to be covering three specific scripts that were in play during the pre-production for Alien 3. But this discussion we're having today is going to kind of be an overall, an overview of what we're discussing and uh, it's been a while. Uh, thank you guys for joining us. It's been about a little over three weeks. Um, there's been a lot on our plates. We're working on proximity. That's coming to... We have a lot done on that. Um, we also have another podcast, which is called Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner Files. There's a new Blade Runner film coming out this coming week. And we are more than excited for it. So there's a lot going on. We have a new website that we've discussed. Um, we have Patreon. We have so much... Um, going on for us or going on with us so with that said um, we're going to jump right into it thank you gentlemen this is rumor control here are the facts as some of you know a 337 model eev crash landed here at 0600 on the morning watch there was one survivor Two dead and a droid that was hopelessly smashed beyond repair. The survivor is a woman. So we are super excited and super honored that we have our first Patreon supporter. Uh, his name or her name is Casey Knopp. And, um, and you have been so incredibly generous and your funding uh, will be helping us to you know get bandwidth and hosting fees for the website and bringing you more and uh, more diverse content. And so... We just really, the whole team really is so excited and honored by you giving us um, your hard-earned money uh, on a recurring basis. And, and just to remind everybody, Patreon is uh, is a platform that's utilized by a lot of podcasts to get more and better content out there and to really help to have a more sustainable business model. And if you are interested in supporting us, as Casey did so generously, just go ahead to perfectorganism.com, our website, and click on the Patreon link, and it's set up. And you can give us, you know... 50 cents a month if you like or you can do more than that you can do uh you know whatever you feel comfortable giving but the purpose of this is so that um you can have a direct hand in the development and um of this of this show that we really enjoy bringing to you guys and um so uh so being mentioned on the air was actually one of casey's uh tier prizes for this but there's other things too we're gonna uh casey will be on the website and thanked via social media and also um, getting a discount on merchandise and some other stuff too so 
Thank you again, Casey, so much. And if anybody else is interested, please uh, go ahead and feel free to donate. We really appreciate it. And we will use it really, really well. Absolutely. Thank you, Casey. And uh, we're kind of developing right now uh, a poster that is uh, synonymous with Perfect Organism. Uh, Patrick and I are talking about that. I want one. I'm excited about it. Uh, There's a lot happening. And uh, again, uh, thank you guys for listening. Thank you for being fans. Thank you for making us the podcast that we are. Um, I started this over two years ago, and it was a little itty-bitty, and now we're pretty big. So thank you. So to get right into this, uh, what this is, this discussion... uh, Alien 3 is a very storied production. It's famous throughout kind of Hollywood legend of being a a film that went through years and years of development hell. And development hell is a very specific industry term. Development hell means it sat um, in essentially a production office and they were like, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to make this? What should we do? And a lot of this, a lot of the production hell or the production or development hell uh, came about because Aliens was so successful. Aliens was, I think it made $86 million uh, domestically in 1986, which was huge. I, I, the, the adjusted dollars for that, I think it's probably around like $160 million today. I'm pretty sure. I'm not positive. Um, it, it did gangbusters. So they had to follow up. They needed to follow up the film. But strangely enough, despite the success of the film... Um, Walter Hill and David Geiler, who are the uh, famous producers of Alien and Aliens, and then eventually Alien 3, they weren't that keen on a sequel. They felt like, you know, we were successful, and, you know, let's let's leave it alone. But commerce and the idea of making more money for the studio was a big deal. So they decided, let's... Let's put it out there and let's find another story. This is kind of... Our discussion kind of takes... Takes... uh, Kind of finds its path at, at that place with them finding a stories. And they went in many, many different directions with many, many different screenwriters. And uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And it's so fascinating uh, that this thing had so many different beginnings and so many different endings before it even came into the world in any form like what we know of it. And of course, when it came into the world, it was in a different form than the one that most of us watched after the assembly cut came out. It's just an, an amazing story. And uh, because, as we mentioned, we're doing this whole mini-series on Alien 3, because we all think it's very interesting, um, we're going to be breaking this small episode out into three separately produced mini-episodes on three of the most uh, controversial and interesting iterations of the story that eventually became Alien 3. So be looking for those. They're coming soon. And and just as Jamie said, this is basically a kickoff. This is uh, This is a way for us to sort of set things up and talk about what happened, um, and hopefully set you up for some really cool content that's coming down the road. So anyway, um, yeah, so, so, so early on they were going through these different ideas and nothing was really taking, taking root. But, um, one idea that stuck out to Geiler and Hill and also Gordon Carroll of Brandywine Productions was this idea of a two-part film that would allow them to explore the, uh, Wayland yutani Corporation and a little bit more of their backstabbing and biomechanical warfare stuff. Um, with Hicks as the protagonist, and then another film where Ripley would come back as the protagonist, and uh, and that would be a chance um, for an Earth battle, basically. And um, so so people kind of were signing on to it. Ridley Scott was, of course, approached to direct, but he had a dropout because it didn't work out with his schedule. 
Um, and Sigourney Weaver had this kind of weird, uh, maybe I will, maybe I won't relationship with it based on her feeling like the character had sort of been burned out. Um, and of course, famously, she, she ultimately, um, insisted that the character be killed off in the film because she thought that was the, the, the only fair way to end this. But basically before there was even a script or before there was even a story, there was this very complicated discussion about where it was going to go and whether the invisible hand of the market, as it were, was going to direct uh, this project in a direction where the creative forces behind it wouldn't be proud of what came out of it. So that was part of the this setup early on. And it's fascinating that uh, Ripley, or I'm sorry, that Sigourney Weaver was re- hesitant to go back into it. And I think she had some good instincts. I think Sigourney Weaver really wanted the best story. And with James Cameron, they found a great story. I mean, they lucked out. I mean, they found a director who wasn't just like, oh, sure, I'll direct this movie. Who's writing it? He was a director who had something to say, who had who had another story that he wanted to bring. And he pushed Ripley further. He made Ripley who she is today. Without James Cameron's iteration of Ripley, we wouldn't feel the way about her that we do. Um, and I think that's a very uh, specific and uh, important note to make, that James Cameron really... Uh, is responsible for making Ripley who she is. Um, And so I think going off of that, and, you know, even though she was hesitant to go into Aliens, um, you know, they found a good story. James Cameron wrote a great story. I think she was probably hesitant to think, I don't know if we can do this again. I don't know if Ripley can wake up again thinking there's an alien on board. Uh, There was a lot of hesitancy from everyone. Um, But I think Fox wanted to make some more money. Exactly. Exactly. So, so some, one of the first people attached to this and one of the most famous people attached to any alien film was William Gibson. So uh, in the next few days, you're going to be hearing a separate episode that Ryan, our other co-host, is producing about um, Gibson's script that goes into quite a bit more detail than this. But I'll, I'll lay out some of the basics. Basically, um, in late 1987, Brandywine approached him uh, and thought he'd be a good fit for the movie, which, of course, I agree, knowing William Gibson's novels, that he'd be an, an amazing fit for it. Um, and uh, there was this Writers Guild of America strike, so there was this very hard deadline of getting it done by December. So keep in mind, this is this is September when he was initially approached, and they said we need it in two months before the Writers Guild of America goes on strikes. So he had a bunch of choices to make very quickly. Um, at this point, Guyler and Hill already had come up with a treatment for the story, um, and they they were trying to play off of our these um, these fears that that um, we had in, in the United States of this kind of Soviet incursion, because of course the Berlin Wall hadn't fallen yet, uh, and so they had this this quote unquote Marxist space empire um, story, and uh, Gibson kind of liked that, so he was writing off of that, and then that's how Rennie Harlan, who was a Finnish director, got attached to the uh, to the film, and he of course was was great. He was behind one of the Nightmare on Elm Street films, um, and he was. Uh, a very interesting choice for that. So anyway, so Gibson wrote this script, and he wasn't super excited about it, but uh, but he, he got it done in time. And it basically concerned this socialist group of, uh, of space drifters called the Union of Progressive Peoples, or the UPP, or the UPI. I don't know how you say that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and basically a facehugger explodes out of Bishop's, um, you know, corpse, his robo-corpse. Um, when the UPP finds the Sulaco that's been drifting around for a long time, it attacks them. It gets to a floating mall called Anchor Point. So, of course, you, you can imagine this is some sort of a commentary on, um, you know, socialism versus uh, capitalism or something. I don't know what. Um, Ripley's in a coma this whole time, so Hicks becomes the protagonist of the film, which, hey, that, that could have been very cool to see. 
Um, and he, as he's exploring this this space station shopping mall, he discovers that there is an alien army being developed by Wayland Yutani. And uh, of course, this gets out of hand. There's an infestation. There's a huge attack. And then the movie ends famously with a teaser that um, the humans must unite to kill down the aliens. And uh, this makes it sound like they're going to Earth, or it makes it sound like there's a, a larger story coming down. What was cool about it is that uh, it's it's a very exciting script. It's um, it's very there's a lot of action. There's a lot of um, you know very intense set pieces. Uh, there's also a cool metaphor where the alien infestation is this sort of um, a subtle nod to the um, ongoing HIV crisis, which of course is really picking up in society at that point. Um, but uh, what happened was the the strike happened. He couldn't write anymore. And then when it finally came out of it. Um, he was asked to make re- Gibson was asked to make rewrites, and he was like, "You know what? I'm just done. This is not going to work out." And that was how William Gibson uh, ended up out of the project. But of course, Rennie Harlan, the Finnish director I mentioned, was still on it, and that's how it goes to the next stage, which I'll let Jamie talk about. Yes, which is Eric Red, and you know, to be honest with you, as much as I know about Alien, there's a lot I still I don't know in terms of well, Alien Three and behind the scenes. And so Eric Red, he had a script uh, tentatively titled. Alien World, which I've never heard of. Um, it was a 1989 script draft, and this it was obviously a sequel to Aliens. And uh, Red was the second of ten different scripts written for Alien 3. Ten different scripts. That's one. Ten? Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, the story bears no relation to Alien 3, um, and it's it focuses on a character named Sam Smith, and I'm reading a little bit here from the avpwikia.com. Um just because, uh, you know, these, I just learned this. I didn't even know about Eric Red's script until yesterday. So, uh, and his, so let me, let me just read a little bit of what Wiki says. The story bears no relation to Alien 3. It was ultimately made, in, instead, focusing on a character named Sam Smith, battling xenomorphs aboard a space station, part of which consists of a giant glass dome containing an entall, an entall small town in in the USA, uh, and the town was called North Star. It was written. It was written after William Gibson's proposed script was rejected, and it was followed by David Toohey's unmade attempt. So, um, it, it's a very interesting script. Script, and I when I was reading kind of the, the rundown, it was it was kind of confusing to me. Um, and the aliens they turned into something a little bit more like Transformers to me. Uh, whereas there's a certain point in the film where the aliens kind of coalesce and they. Form one giant alien. Um, and in this town called North Star, which is in space, there's a drive-in movie theater. Um, it has this kind of 1950s feel, which I think is completely wrong and completely off. Um, I, I don't even know what the guy was thinking. I, I just don't. And I think it sounds like someone who was trying to come up with the script. Like, oh, why don't you write an, a sequel to Aliens? Oh, okay. You know, um, it, it doesn't sound like a, a, a guy who, or a person who thought, oh wow, I love this series. I want to I want to write another film. So, Alien World um it just it doesn't obviously it doesn't feature Sigourney Weaver. It doesn't feature any of the cast that we know. It was completely a standalone movie. So, that was one direction that Fox was considering. Let's if if Sigourney Weaver doesn't want to be involved, which she kind of hinted at, if Ridley Scott and James Cameron don't want to be involved, Let's go off in a different direction and tell a new story. So that's where they were they were headed before they realized Alien was Ripley. They were synonymous with each other. Um, 
Ripley, Sam Smith, the the star of Alien World, does find a tattered name badge bearing the name Ripley. Um, and that's kind of the only connection that this film has with the other films, which I think is interesting. The next script that we're going to discuss in depth, and this is going to be something that I'm going to talk about in my segment far more in depth, and I'll do some reading and I'll do some, uh, I'll do some talking about the research that I've done. But essentially, David Toohey's script for Alien 3 features a portion of what we ended up seeing in Alien, in Alien 3, the film, and it was set on a prison colony. And that's kind of the bones of the setup. And obviously we know Alien 3 is set on a prison colony. And aside from that setup, that's all that we see of Tui's script is the prison colony. One note to make and I'll, is yeah. that uh, Tui's script is... Tui's script is one of... Uh, strangely enough, he reverts back to the to the term Wayland as opposed to how we know Wayland yutani with a D. So initially in Alien, Wayland yutani was W-E-Y-L-A-N. And then it was subsequently changed to Wayland in Aliens, W-E-Y-L-A-N-D. Tui script goes back to Wayland. I don't know why. That's a very strange decision to make uh, in terms of continuity. It's odd, but that's the decision he makes. Now, whether that have, would have seen, we would have seen that in the final film, uh, you know, remains to be seen. We probably wouldn't have. They would have probably, for the sake of continuity, picked up where James Cameron left off. Uh, another interesting note, one of the aliens, they called the chameleon alien in the Tui script, it had the ability to change color of, of its exoskeleton to match its environment. Very strange. Uh, the, there was a brute alien, a hybrid of a larger build, with a larger build with spikes on its exoskeleton. Again, very strange. And there's this, there's this thing with these alien films where they feel like they have to change the creature and give us something new every film that we see. James Cameron really didn't do that. He kind of, he changed their look a little bit, but, well, I mean, I suppose he did. He introduced the Queen, um, which is something that we hadn't seen before, but in terms of the regular alien creature that we know and love, it remained the same for Cameron. He did a couple things. He took the dome off, but the architecture was the same. There was no, like, oh, look, it can fly um, with Tui Right, and, and of course, well, I was going to say, of course, the dome was only changed because it kept breaking when it was the 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 smooth translucent one they couldn't get it to work in the hive so they had to change you know it was out of necessity too. A- absolutely and uh in Tui's script it was one of the it, it kind of began that idea of yes let's change this alien let's let's make it different and i i think um in my personal opinion the creature that the creature that hr geiger designed is beautiful and terrifying and amazing and i don't think it needs to be altered uh, unless it was altered by him, like he did in Alien Three, which impossibly he made it even scarier and even more seductive and terrifying and kind of feminine and very just disturbing in many ways. Um, but aside from that, I, I, is my, I'm of the opinion that the creature doesn't need to be changed. If you can't make it scary the way it is, then don't change it. It doesn't need to be. Uh, anyways, uh, we can talk about that in a, in a large Well, I'll just way. say, unless you are designing some kick-ass Kenner action figures based on the greatest <laughs> unmade cartoon of all time, which uh, we will talk more about in future episodes. But yeah, I, I agree. In terms of the canonical films, yeah. Don't don't broke it if it ain't if it don't fix it if it ain't broken yeah. or don't broke it if it ain't fixed. I, don't, I don't broke I don't it know, if I it can't ain't fixed. <laughs> I don't know how to speak anymore. There's a lot going on uh, in Tui's script. There's a lot that I'm going to get uh, in depth with. Those are some of the the things that I noticed. Um, it it I, I will say it's strange to read these scripts 
uh, for alien films without Ripley in them. Uh, now, granted, we have seen Prometheus without Ripley. We've seen Alien Covenant without Ripley. But these are sequels to Aliens, and they don't have Ripley in them. And it's just odd to think, how could you not include this archetypal character? Um, and obviously, we know what happened. They realized they can't make another Alien film without Ripley. So they included Ripley in the, the iteration of Alien 3 that we all know and love, that hopefully most of us all know and love. So with that said, Patrick's going to talk about his script, or the script that he's going to be reviewing, which is Vincent Ward's script. Have you got some sort of plan? This is a lead works, isn't it? All we gotta do is lure the fucking beast into the mold. Drown it in hot lead. All right. So how do we do that? Yeah. What are we gonna use for bait? gonna die. The only question is when. This is as good a place as any to take your first steps to heaven. The only question is how you check out. Do you want it on your feet or on your fucking knees? Begging. I ain't much for begging. Nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Yeah, I gotta say, I wish it were my actual script because it is freaking awesome. <laughs> I wish I had written it, um, but uh, unfortunately I didn't. But I did get to write a little segment about it, so you'll, you'll hear that shortly. But yeah, like Jamie was saying, that you know Fox especially was really pushing to get Sigourney Weaver back into the series and, um, and Tui wrote her back into it. Um, but at this point, they were still kind of up in the air with what was going to happen with this film. So Vincent Ward, who's a New Zealand director who had a string of hits around this time in the late 80s, early 90s, including The Navigator, A Medieval Odyssey, which is a very cool movie, I recommend it, um, was, uh, was being approached by uh, Guyler and Hill to um, get involved because they thought he had a really imaginative vision for this. And we'll, of course, go much more into this on the special episode about it. But just to give you an overview... The, the the key difference with this, among others, is that religion was kind of at the core of it. And it wasn't only religion. It was this monastic sect on a floating wooden satellite, which is just like such an amazing science fiction set piece in and of itself that I would have loved to have seen this be made. But of course, very significant strains of it ended up making its way into the final screenplay, which we'll get to. But basically, so so Ward had this whole idea of this, this monastic satellite thing and this this religious sect that was kind of cult-like of these monks and he, uh, a writer named john fazano uh, was hired to uh, make it into a screenplay and uh so, so of course Tui had no clue any of this was happening and he was still working on his own version of the movie and then when he found out that there was this whole separate creative team making a whole different story he was like you know what i'm i'm done i'm, I'm leaving this shit so he he left so now it was basically in, in ward's lap um, and so his whole his whole uh, idea was that there were these Luddites in space, these monks that had no technology and were basically separating themselves from, from humanity for various really fascinating re- reasons and were um, going back to this uh, almost medieval state. So, for example, when Ripley's escape pod shows up, they think it's a good omen. They think it's a falling star. And when Ripley shows up and uh, the alien starts to um, infect the colony, 
uh, they think that it's some sort of a that that's, that this is some sort of a retribution from God for their sins. They think it's a religious thing, a trial. Um, they think that the sexual temptation of having a woman in their midst is what is doing this. So, and of, and of course, for all of you who know the third film's final script, which I'm sure all of you do, there there are very very uh, direct links uh, between this and that. Even though this is a very different story overall, um, eventually. Uh, she she gets locked into a dungeon within this colony within this wooden satellite. They start treating the alien as a essentially Satan incarnate, and uh, she uh, is impregnated with an alien and she kills herself to set to uh, to to destroy the alien. And um and this was uh this, there were, there was pushback from the studio on this. Fox said you can't have her killing herself at the end of this movie. She's the reason we're doing this thing. And Sigourney Weaver said, nope, I have to die at the end of this. That's the only way that I'm going to make this movie because it's the only thing that makes sense. So it had a lot of positive buzz within the industry, and people really thought this was a, a new take on it. And like I've said, this is probably the most famous and the most interesting um, and the most sought after of all of these potential scripts among the fan community because it just could have been so fascinating to see this done. And of course, it's gotten a lot of recognition as one of the great screenplays never made into a feature film. Um and uh, who knows, maybe someday somebody will make some kind of a short or something. I would love to see that. But anyway, the, the problem was that the production crew was very divided. Um, there was uh, these huge issues about how they would actually make this planet. Um, it was uh, thought to be too artsy, or actually, as as John Landau of Fox said, quote-unquote, it was too artsy-fartsy, <laughs> which which I appreciated. Um, and it was, it was a little bit too difficult, a little bit too um, uh, divisive, and it was deemed unfilmable and uh they brought this big document to vincent ward and the, and john fasano i would imagine and said here are all of the changes that need to be made it was an itemized list and ward said screw this i'm done and so again this is like the sixth filmmaker that was mm-hmm. that decided he was done with the project and he left it which is just crazy it's crazy how many things this went through so i'll go ahead and wrap this whole thing up basically Walter Hill and David Geiler, who of course were the Brandywine producers along with Gordon Carroll that we talked about in the beginning and who were behind the, the other films, um, decided, okay, we have we have this Fasano script that was written with Ward. We have these interesting bones. Uh, we have uh, something that we can do with this. So they got a script doctor named Larry Ferguson to come on board, and he wrote all this dialogue, which everybody hated. So, including Sigourney Weaver, who said that uh, he made her sound like a pissed-off gym teacher. So she left the project. Uh, or she threatened to leave the project if rather if he was kept on board. So then they got rid of Larry Ferguson and all of his script rewrites. And Hill and Geiler said, you know what? We are going to take the, what we have of this existing Fasano treatment along with what David Toohey said about a prison planet. And we're going to make a movie out of that. And they didn't have a director at this point. They, they still didn't know who was going to make the movie. So then they had David Fincher, who was essentially a music video director and had done commercials. And 27 years and, old. And uh, he had worked on Return of the Jedi. As a cameraman, I did not know yes, that. Yes, he did. When he was, I did not know was, that. How is that possible? Yeah, he was nineteen years old at the time. Oh my god! Well, that's that's a whole episode in yeah. itself. But anyway, so so they did all this all this work. There was another author brought on board named Rex Pickett, uh, who who was another script doctor, and then he got fired. In addition to this, so 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 this is I don't know maybe thirteen different creative people that have been fired from this project and Hill and Geiler said fuck it we're gonna write our own final draft got rid of everything basically that had been added over the last four or five months and uh, wrote this new treatment that combined the Prison Planet from Tui's version with the monastic sect from uh, Ward and Fasano's version 
and became kind of after David Fincher started rewriting it um, in parts and, and started informing the story to a degree, although there was a lot of studio pushback, of course, on him as well, ended up becoming somehow this crazy, beautiful, wonderful, idiosyncratic film that was the theatrical cut of Alien 3. And uh, that's kind of it's that's kind of how it came to be. It's a fascinating story. It really is. And, and ultimately, Vincent Ward got story credit. I don't think anyone else did. Uh, you know, David, you know, David Geiler and Walter Hill obviously got story credit as well. But the story they're attributing the larger portion of the story to Vincent Ward. And I think that was pretty good. I, right. And you see those credits roll and you see Vincent Ward's name yeah, right there. So that's money in the bag for him. Um, and to his credit, I, I think um, I like the idea and what we ultimately saw of the prison colony that kind of has a monk feel to it. I don't like the setup. I didn't feel like the setup of this big wooden thing in space. Um, it didn't feel on the nose. It didn't feel right for alien, but I think that obviously that there were elements in that story that were perfect for alien. But it's just, it, part of it to me is uh, there's two parts of it that I think are really attractive. One is it's something we've really never seen. Like I, I can't think of any other Hollywood film where there's a satellite made of wood, probably for very, you know, um, realistic reasons that have to do with vacuums but you know still it's something we hadn't seen before but also seeing just the physical aspect of of a xenomorph interacting with a wooden object of this thing that's very alien with juxtaposed with this thing that's very comfortable and very human you know this this uh this idea of this extremely futuristic science fiction franchise being melded with something that we've been working with for thousands of years as a species something that is averse to fire being melded with something that creates fire in the right conditions. It's just I, I something about that. Something about seeing, you know, like in the set um, that's described in the screenplay, it talks about a library that there's these mountainous bookshelves. And I'm thinking, how cool would it be to see an alien a xenomorph leaping between books, not knocking books off of bookshelves, and tumbling down hundreds of feet to this cavernous wooden floor and thumping on a stone uh, cistern, you know, that's collecting water from some sort of drainage system. It just, it just to me, it seems like a really interesting idea. I, I, I think it would. Be I cool. would agree, I, and I think I like that idea too. I just think uh, maybe if the the actual planet wasn't wooden, but maybe inside the planet was wooden. You know what I mean? Like, so if it was like a traditional space station, you 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 know, you're you're in a ship and you're pulling up on this little tiny space station. Um, and however it is, maybe it's square, or maybe it looks like uh, the Nostromo or Sevastopol or something. But as you dock into it and you exit, the moment you exit from your ship out of the dock, you're in this kind of wooden world. Um, so mm. that makes to me a little bit more sense. Like a wooden structure just wouldn't even work in space. So, but it, it would right. work within. <laughs> That's the very true. Structure. So if the metal structure was a ship and it looked like any other ship, then you walk into it and it's kind of like the TARDIS in, in Doctor Who where you're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. So it's this whole other world and you go in and there's there's rivers or there's ponds and there's forests and there's trees and there's all these things. That would have been interesting. So it's this kind of oasis, this Shangri-La on its own, often kind of drifting off in space. I think that could work completely. And I love, as you were talking about, seeing the alien run in books. I love that. I think it's great. Um, and it would have been great. Yeah, it's something new, yes. you know. And, and, and we like to talk a lot about how part of what makes Alien 3 a, a beautiful film is that it is not beholden to what came before in some sort of a, a you know, a precious way. Like, like, you know, like Alien was its own thing because it was the first 
Aliens was its own thing because it took elements of the first film and did them in very different ways and blew up and made the story very large. And it's like, you know, in the third one, they could have made it very small again, or they could have tried to make it bigger. They could have done this whole, you know, floating biosphere with Transformer aliens in it, you know. Um, But instead of that, they made it small and different, small and intimate, small and old. And it's very, part of why I think is, part of what I think is Star Wars' lasting appeal is the fact that it starts with a with a, a crawl that says a long time ago in a galaxy far far away it's saying this is mm-hmm. old you know that space that this thing that we think of is so fantastical and so futuristic and forward looking you know we see our destiny and when we look up at the stars you know but that that it's been there before we knew mm-hmm. about it and that there were these old these old uh traditions and things that echo through time and and there's something cool about the juxtaposition of the of the forward looking and the backward looking that I find really attractive so I'm, I'm excited to dive into that Absolutely. On the episode. It's going to be, uh, as we get more and more involved in this and we each release our own mini episodes of the scripts that we're going to talk about and we go into depth with those, it's going to be really interesting. It's it's also informing us too. This isn't something where we're like, oh, we know all this stuff. I knew about these scripts. I knew about them when I was in, in college. I studied them while I was uh, taking a screenwriting class. Um, it was my, really my first introduction. Even at that point, I still knew a lot because I was a huge Alien fan. Um, so, But as we continue to discuss this with our listeners, with our, each other, we're learning this stuff too. Um, and it's interesting, and I want to point out, and I think it's important, Alien has a very storied history. And as, aside from the first two, and even before they made Aliens, David Geiler and Walter Hill, they were trying to come up with a, a sequel to Alien. Um, at the behest of the company and they were trying to figure out and they put their sights on a kind of a young new director they kind of went the George Lucas route a little bit and they said well who can we find and they found James Cameron and they said we would like to make a story of you know we'd might like to make a sequel do you have any ideas uh, but before that conversation even happened they were talking to Cameron about ideas he had for other films that they weren't really interested in so the Legacy of Alien is really is not like is unlike other films where, for instance, with George Lucas, he had a whole kind of a Bible that he wrote about Star Wars. He had a he had an end game. He had a a whole. This is the family. This is the story. This is where it goes off to. Alien. They make it up as they go along, and they continue to make it up as they go along. Um, and uh, in some ways that's been great. In some ways that's been a detriment. Um, and the studio famously has brought in writer after writer after writer, let's try this, let's try that, no, that doesn't work, um, for Alien Resurrection before they hired Jean-Pierre Genet of Amelie and Delicatessen fame and The City of Lost Children, which are all incredible films. Um, I know, such great uh, films. They were talking with the, the director of um, Train Spotting, which is, uh, what's his name right now? Oh, my God. D- uh, Danny, Danny Boyle. Uh, Danny, uh, Danny Boyle. Right, Danny Boyle. So they I almost said to... Danny McBride. <laughs> <laughs> Not I don't think Danny McBride directed that. No, yeah. yeah. So, yeah Dan, Danny Boyle. Totally. Who, of, of course, so, based on Sunshine, would have been Fox, a great director uh, for it, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Sunshine was phenomenal. Um, and yeah. Danny Boyle met with Sigourney Weaver. She, at that point, in, and I know we're talking about Alien 3, but I'm just I'm mentioning this just to kind of talk to you, to kind of inform our listeners about how these films are made. So... They got a story going by Joss Whedon. They needed a director. So Danny Boyle was new on the scene. He had directed Train Spotting, which did great business. Very subversive, very fresh, very new, very exciting. Very um, t- 
different. Just even the way the film was made was very different at that time. And it was in, it was obviously we were in the nineties still. And so they, he was on board for a minute. Uh, and Sigourney meter met Sigourney Weaver met him. She liked him. Um, eventually he backed out because he, the word was, is he was a little bit, uh, intimidated by the amount of special effects that the film required. So he backed out. Then they decided to go with a non-speaking English, uh, non-speaking or a non-English speaking director named Jean-Pierre Genet, who directs beautiful films. And we got alien resurrection. And unfortunately with alien resurrection, the, the cinematography, everything about it was beautiful. It was really the story that was the problem. But I mentioned this to say that alien three had the same fate where they brought in writer after writer, after writer, director, after director, trying to flush out a new story and to make a story as good as the first two films. And I think alien, the alien saga today can, is always on that path. How do we get another film as good as aliens? And, uh, and that's kind of where we're at. And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a franchise without a direction. It's a franchise without, uh, like a Bible, uh, in terms of this is the story and this is where we're going on the story. And uh, it continues to be, and it's it part, kind of makes it exciting a little bit. Like, what story were we going to get next? Um, so yeah, we're going to kind of explore that as much as best we can uh, within the next three episodes. So thank you all for listening. Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, can be found on Apple Podcasts and through iTunes. We are also on Facebook. Go to www.facebook.com forward slash perfect organism perfect organism is hosted through podbean www.perfectorganism.podbean.com we also have our own facebook discussion group building better worlds